cold that's been going through our house. So that's just the way things will be this morning. If you would uh, turn in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 51 for our scripture reading, we will be in another passage of scripture for the message, but um, I want to start off in Isaiah 51 here for our reading time together. Isaiah 51, we will read just the first eight verses of the chapter. Listen to me, you who follow after righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father, and to Sarah who bore you, for I called him alone, and blessed him, and increased him. For the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden, and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in it, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Listen to me, my people, and give ear to me, O my nation. For law will proceed from me, and I will make my justice rest as a light of the peoples. My righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, and my arms will judge the peoples. Uh, the coastlands will wait upon me, and on my arm they will trust. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, and look on the earth beneath. For the heavens will vanish away like smoke, and the earth will grow old like a garment, and those who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not be abolished. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, you people in whose heart is my law. Do not fear the reproach of men, nor be afraid of their insults, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like a wool, but my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation from generation to generation. Let's pray, and then we'll uh, transition to our message. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time that we can gather and look into your word. I thank you that you are mighty and strong to save, and that because of what you have done, we gather this morning to worship you, to praise you and thank you for what you have done and are doing in this world. I pray that you would open our eyes as we look into your word, that you would open our hearts and help us to respond in faith and obedience to all that you have given to us. Thank you, Lord, for your great power, your majesty and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you would turn now to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And in Isaiah there, we saw that God was predicting how his righteousness would prevail over all time. That there is coming judgment for sin. That there is a future hope for those who depend on the promises of God. And in Romans, of course, that is a very central theme. Paul wrote this letter to the church at Rome, a church that had developed um, without his involvement. 
a church that had begun before he got there. Unlike so many of the other churches that Paul wrote letters to, this one was something that he was going to visit later on in life. And so this whole letter is intended to uh, show the, the church at Rome that Paul brought to them a gospel that was not any different from the gospel that they believed. And so because of that, Paul goes into extensive detail about the nature of the gospel itself. And we have a tremendous letter, one that, <coughs> excuse me, is uh, incredibly encouraging for us to study, even today, because he goes into theological detail about all it is that took place on the cross and in our hearts as God transforms us into his image. And when we think about the gospel, the message about God and his plan to save sinful people, to transform them into the image of his son, well, we're just used to using that word so regularly, aren't we, that it becomes part of how Christians talk. And it becomes easy to say as just kind of a justification or a reason for everything else we think. And it's true that the gospel is the foundation of the entire Christian message. But what is easy to do with foundations is to forget that they're there, right? Until something goes wrong or something like that. And so it's helpful for us as believers to regularly review and remind ourselves of what the very nature of the foundation is so that we are clear on the blessings that we enjoy and that God is offering to unbelievers everywhere and so that we can also have a better and stronger relationship with our great God. Let's start reading in Romans chapter 1. We'll just read the first few verses of the introduction. And then we uh, may skip ahead to the verses I'm going to focus on for the message. Verse 1, he says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. Oh, thank you. Paul didn't say, oh, thank you, but I did. <laughs> Separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is writing, of course, to these people, these who are believers who have received the same grace that Paul has. And he, in the next few verses here, verses 8 through 15, he talks about his plans for travel how he had hoped to be in Rome before, but things had prohibited and hoped soon to see them in some point. Then in verse 16, he gives us a two-verse 
uh, and I guess two-sentence statement that becomes the theme for the rest of the letter. Let's look at those verses. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now these verses are some of the most famous verses of a book that is full of famous verses. And of all Paul's letters, this one especially is built in such a way that he says one thing which immediately leads to what he says next and then immediately leads to what he says after that. It's very hard to, to, to even make choices of when to stop reading sometimes. But this theme statement, I think, is a really useful place for us to start. And just because, just like a foundation is easy to overlook because it's always there, it is easy for us to underestimate the power and influence of the gospel itself, perhaps because we haven't spent a lot of time recently thinking about what the gospel is. And in these two verses, Paul shows that the gospel displays God rescuing people from sin. And so as we look at this passage, as we look at these two verses, we will see two realities that are contained in the gospel itself. And the first of these is in verse 16. And it has to do with God's actions in relationship to us. And so the gospel in verse 16 reveals God's glorious salvation. Paul says that he is not ashamed of it, and we certainly know from his life that he was very bold. He endured all kinds of suffering and persecution in order to proclaim the message of the gospel. And as he tells us about what it is like, he says that the gospel is the power of God to salvation. And that tells us that God's glorious salvation never fails. When he describes it as the power of God, he's making a specific point about it. He's saying that the gospel is dynamic, that it is effective. And so when we talk about the gospel and we remember that that word means God's power, that transforms our thinking. That goes beyond the um, way we sometimes tend to think about the gospel when we just use it as a vocabulary word for all the stuff Christianity is based on and underneath. You see, gospel as God's power goes way beyond what we typically mean when we say gospel as message about God the content you need to hear, the pitch that you need to receive and accept so that you can be part of the club. The gospel is not, of course, it, it includes a message. 
and includes content that you need to understand. There is a story, there is doctrine, there is much involved, but ultimately that story and that doctrine and that content and that message only exists because of God's power that is underneath. The message of the gospel is a proclamation to everyone who will listen of the power of God. And those, that power has unescapable results. It influences everyone. It impacts everything that occurs in this world. The gospel is the power of God. And it says here, he says it is the power of God to, or in, you could even translate this, unto salvation. Now, when Paul speaks about salvation, he often has more in mind than just a person's moment of initial conversion. Of course, we're used to thinking about it that way, and and it's true to say that, that a person's salvation occurred at this particular time in this particular place. And sometimes Paul speaks about it that way. For example, in Ephesians 2.8, another famous gospel verse, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And so there he describes something that has taken place in the memorable past, and something that is a foundation for what he is about to say about the nature of the gospel as a gift. But many times when Paul speaks about salvation, he is referring to much more than just a moment in time when you place your faith in Jesus. He often uses it to describe the way that God will ultimately deliver his people from wrath in the end. For example, Romans 5, 9, and 10. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So the God's glorious salvation, the gospel itself, is something that never fails. It is a power, a power that produces something he calls salvation for the elect, for those whom God has chosen. And we see the gospel's power as God uses it to deliver people from his wrath. It is more than just a message. It is more than just a sales pitch. By transforming people, The gospel becomes what John Knox called a part of the continuing dynamic event of God's redemption plan. It is an infallible power. It cannot be opposed. Yet, it seems that people do that rather successfully, don't they? How is it that that occurs? How is it that this... um, inconquerable power seems to be resisted so regularly and so commonly in our world. Well, in the next part of the verse, 
we see that God's glorious salvation is available to all who believe. He says, it is for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And so this salvation, this power that is given from God to deliver people from his wrath is available to everybody regardless of national heritage. It's true that not all people actually receive God's glorious salvation, but that is not because it's unavailable. Rather, the gospel is available to everyone. Paul emphasizes that by saying it is for both Jew and Greek. He's writing to the church at Rome. He is, of course, a Jewish person. So it is important for him to emphasize that this is available to all people, regardless of their nationality and heritage. Yes, God first extended his grace to humankind through the Jewish nation, but now the blessing has been offered to the Gentiles as well. There is no difference in the gospel itself. Both Jew and Gentile come to God through Jesus Christ. In Galatians 3.28, he says it this way, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The gospel is the most tremendous unifier of humanity that exists. All of these ways in which we separate ourselves, all of these ways in which we categorize and distinguish ourselves from other people, are not related to the extent of the power of the gospel. It is available to everyone. And yet when we look at exactly what Paul says, he says it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. So you see, it is available to all. It doesn't matter where you come from. And it is actually given to those who believe. This salvation, which is available, is limited to those who believe. In his commentary in Romans, Leon Morris says that if everyone marks the universality, a restriction is indicated by who believes. And that restriction here is faith. You cannot be saved without faith. Elsewhere in this letter, Paul is going to condemn the Jews for their unbelief, for their lack of faith. And so that is the limiter of the gospel. Now, we want to be very careful as we think about the dynamics of how all this works. We don't want to suggest that when you or I have had faith or exercised faith, placed our trust and dependence in God, that we have somehow done something that got us onto God's good list, that made us somebody that God would like and favor and give this special blessing. And Paul's point in this passage is not that the gospel is glorious because of our believing. His point is that the gospel is glorious because God offers it to all who will believe, and when those people believe, he exercises his mighty power to save them. I'll never forget 
One day, when I was about 13 years old, as it happens, my sister is here visiting with us today. I don't know if she'll remember this event or not. But um, as is common when you're 13 years old, you've explored life a little bit, and you've discovered just enough to know what you know and not know what you don't know. Right? And so I think at this point in my life, one of my recent discoveries was that eating tortilla chips with mild salsa was kind of fun and exciting. It was certainly a new experience for me. And um, 13-year-olds explore their new experiences in all sorts of great ways. So, so I, I, I remember this. I, I liked mild salsa at that point so much that sometimes I just scoop a spoonful out of it out of the bowl, and just like, you know, eat the spoonful straight out of the spoon, no chips involved. That was fun at 13 years old. You know, when you don't have much experience, thrills are cheap. So, so I thought I was pretty tough because I could handle mild salsa. And one day, a friend of mine was over for lunch, and I told him all about how much I liked salsa. And he told me that since I liked it so much, I was ready for the next thing. And so with naive bravado, I was all in and ready to dive in and try out this new experience that my friend. So when my friend handed me that bottle of Tabasco sauce, I did the only thing I knew. I filled my spoon up with it and swallowed it in a single gulp. My cheap thrills with mild salsa were over forever at that moment. You know, that's unassuming red sauce. Comes in a room temperature bottle. Technically, I guess you don't even need to refrigerate it. I mean, I recommend it, but you don't have to. And it contained a power that I was not ready for. I don't remember actually what it tasted like when that mix of peppers and vinegar and salt touched my tongue for the first time. All I remember from that lunch is that my whole mouth hurt and that my eyes were filled with tears and I was howling in pain and my buddy was enjoying it all very much. So at that moment, I had applied that potent substance in such a way that its power was palpable. And in an infinitely greater way, the gospel is God's power that unfailingly delivers every person who believes. And if you believe that to be true, in other words, you have experienced God's power in salvation yourself, then you know what I'm talking about. And you should worship God for recognizing that the gospel shows him rescuing people from sin. The gospel shows you that that you can be confident that God is going to deliver you. That he's delivered you from the sins that you've committed in the past and that you have hope for the future to come. So we've seen that the gospel reveals God's glorious salvation. And as a result of God's mighty actions, the things that he has done, we are responsible to believe the gospel. God's actions to save us reveal another reality that teaches us about his own nature, who he is, his character, 
So as we look into verse 17, we see that another reality contained within the gospel has to do with God's righteousness itself. So not only should we trust and enjoy and rejoice in the gospel because it shows us God's glorious salvation, his mighty acts to save, but we should rejoice in the gospel because it displays the righteousness of God. Verse 17, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. God's righteousness is revealed in his righteous acts. It says the righteousness of God is revealed. So when Paul speaks about the righteousness of God, this is a phrase that Paul uses many times. And it's a phrase that has rich Old Testament background. We saw some examples of that in Isaiah chapter 51. But just as another reminder and another example, let me just read to you Isaiah 46, 13. I bring my righteousness near. It shall not be far off. My salvation shall not linger, and I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. These texts speak of God's righteousness as something that will be revealed in the future when God brings salvation to Zion. There is a sense in which this has not yet occurred. Now, this phrase, the righteousness of God, is a fascinating phrase, and interpreting it has led to a lot of detailed thought. There are actually four ways that you could understand this phrase as Paul uses it in his writings. It's, of course, a significant theme in the book of Romans. The phrase righteousness of God shows up eight times in this book, always in important passages like this one. So let me just summarize for you these four ways that you could understand the term righteousness of God. I think it's helpful and important and will give you more color as you try to understand this verse. The first way that you can understand the phrase righteousness of God is to understand it as talking about God's justice. And when you do that, you are sort of emphasizing the negative side of this idea that God is ultimately going to punish sinners for their sin. And that's probably what is going on in Romans 3, 25 and 26, where the phrase occurs. Um, and as Paul is describing how the righteousness of God relates to sinfulness. And that way of understanding the phrase is a very old interpretation of the phrase. And it has a long history, and I think it fits very well in Romans chapter 3, but it is probably wrong here to read God's righteousness in verse 17 as referring primarily to God's judgment. And that is um, actually something that we see in church history. R Martin Luther famously struggled with this very verse because it was difficult for him to see how Paul could speak about this God in positive ways if all that God ever did as a righteous God was punish sinners. 
And of course, when you think just a little bit about the story of Martin Luther, you know that he would struggle with this because he was more painfully aware of his own sin than many people in his time. He went to great extent as a monk to try to absolve himself of his own guilt before God. And so when he came to verse 17, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. It was a terrifying thing for him. And this way of thinking about the righteousness of God led him to think that the last half of the verse meant that when it says the just shall live by faith, it meant that in order to be just, you have to live a righteous life. You are yourself responsible to avoid sin and to absolve yourself of its guilt whenever you fail. And so because of that, Luther came to this verse for years and years, aware of all of his extensive efforts to absolve himself of sin, and was yet discouraged because he realized he could never attain enough righteousness to fully exempt himself or absolve himself from the wrath of God that he deserved for his sin. He could never be justified. And so it became a promise that was like an empty hope to him. Paul is talking about the just living by faith, and he was thinking, how on earth will I ever be just? So to describe the righteousness of God in verse 17 as merely describing God's justice when he judges and punishes sinners doesn't really work in this passage. We need something else. And so one way that we can understand this phrase is by describing, thinking of the righteousness of God as describing God's faithfulness. And when you do it that way, it becomes an attribute of God, God's righteousness. And that has a more positive emphasis, and it reminds us of all these Old Testament promises, like the ones we read there, that God is righteous. He's ultimately going to fulfill his promises to his people. He's ultimately going to make it all work out. And that's a lot, much more encouraging idea than what Martin Luther had in mind. But still, when you look at what Paul promises here, it seems like Paul is more excited about it than you would maybe be if you were just thinking about an abstract quality that God has. And there's no clear connection to you as an individual. So another way of looking at this, our third way of understanding the righteousness of God is to see it as a status, a status that is given by God. And then it becomes right standing. Another phrase that interpreters have come up with to to get this idea across is to call this alien righteousness. And they're not, again, talking about um, extraterrestrials. What they're talking about is a righteousness that is alien to you and me. We do not naturally possess righteousness. We are naturally sinful. And this righteousness that is completely outside of us is given to us by God at the moment of salvation because of the virtues of Christ. And so in that way of thinking, Paul is saying in the gospel, the alien righteousness of God is revealed. 
The righteousness, the standing that we did not have is revealed as we uh, hear the gospel about Jesus Christ. And so this is the way that Martin Luther ultimately came to read this verse. Yet there is a lot of overlap, really, between the idea that the righteousness of God is God's righteousness and the idea that the righteousness of God is the right standing that God gives to us. They kind of go together. And because of that, because it's hard to separate the ideas and because it's hard to say that this verse is clearly talking about one idea or the other, many interpreters have said, I'm not even sure we can choose between them in this verse. And so that is what has led us to this fourth way of seeing the phrase in Romans 1.17. The fourth way of understanding this phrase is to see it as speaking of God's action of putting people in the right. It is a divine activity. And this then looks forward to a future when God will fulfill this. And you can see how it combines to a certain extent the ideas that we had in the second and third view. God is certainly righteous. We are not. God is the one who is acting to put people into the right. God is the one who is making us to have the righteousness of Christ. So when Paul says that the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed, it's not something that should discourage us or cause us dismay thinking, well, there is no way that I could ever be a just and righteous person. That's true on the, on the basis of it, but there's more. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God, the fact that God is at work in this world that he's made to give you righteousness, to deliver you from sin and its power, to deliver you from sin and its judgment. Now, he says about this righteousness that is revealed in the gospel, that it is experienced by faith. You have this little phrase right after that. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And that's also a bit of a tricky line. It's hard to interpret. It's probably an emphasis. Several translations render it in, in ways to bring that across. For example, one translation goes this way. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. And another goes, this is accomplished from start to finish by faith. So the idea here is that God's righteousness is something we experience by faith. And that should give us confidence. That should give us assurance. Then in the last line of this verse, he repeals to an Old Testament prophet. He says, as it is written, and he says, the just shall live by faith. And so here we see that God's imputed or given righteousness leads to eternal life. In Habakkuk 2.4, where Paul is drawing this quote, this is what it says. Behold, the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. 
So Paul's quotation here could also be accurately translated, the one who is righteous by faith will live. So as we look at the back, at this tremendous gospel, we see that God's righteousness leads to eternal life. We see that God's righteousness is something that you can have by faith, that your faith will sustain you, that you need not doubt or worry about the ultimate effectiveness of the gospel's power in your life. And we see that God's righteousness is something that's revealed in his righteous acts. The gospel displays the righteousness of God. So as we think about this powerful message that reveals God's power at work in history, we have every reason to praise him. We have every reason to rejoice that God has seen fit to reveal himself to us as a God who didn't just create this universe and then walk away, but a God who is involved in everything that is taking place. A God who is involved in the lives of the people that he has made. The gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And it reveals God's righteousness so that the just can live by faith. The gospel shows God rescuing believers from sin. And so we should praise him. We should adore him for his goodness and mercy. In many ways, God would be completely in, within his rights to have behaved in the way that Martin Luther at first thought, judging us for our sin, making us an eternal example of his holiness and our wretched sinfulness. But the God that made this world is not just a moral tyrant, a hateful creature or, or, or other who creates sinful creatures for his own pleasure to destroy. He reaches out in mercy and love and grace to give us a magnificent display of the fact that God is a God of grace and love who delivers those who believe. So now I must ask you, as you think about this tremendous gospel, we're used to thinking about it as a message. But it's more than a message. Every time that we relay the message, every time that we talk about the gospel, as we've done this morning, it should force us to rejoice and remember that God is great and God is loving and God has done all of these things for our own good, for our own his own glory. So can you claim, based on the way that you live, that like Paul, you are unashamed of the gospel of God? Can you demonstrate that this gospel, this powerful action of God to deliver sinners is operating in your own life? Can you 
show that you believe the gospel with your whole heart, that God has saved you, given you his righteousness, that you are living a changed life. This is the way that our presentation of the message of the gospel can be most effective. Not by memorizing all the theological points, although those are valuable and can help answer a lot of questions. Not by being able to point to just having been in church a long time or having read the Bible faithfully. But this needs to be the foundational bedrock for everything that you do in life. And when you recognize it and understand it that way, it gives you a reason to praise him, to thank him and rejoice in all that God has done, in all that God has uh, fulfilled to this point in carrying out his promises for all time. And so as we think about the gospel of God, we should rejoice because it shows God rescuing people from sin. Let's pray. Oh Lord and Father and Savior, I thank you that we are able to have access to you, that our lives have been transformed and are being transformed as you make us into the image of your dear Son. And Lord, I pray that you would fill our hearts with joy that you would fill our minds with delight because you have delivered us from sin by the power of the gospel of God. And Lord, I pray that as we rejoice in that transformation, that you would continue to be at work in us, that you would make us uh, more and more into the image of your dear son, that you would give us facility and confidence as we tell people the gospel message about God delivering people from sin, that you would allow that to have its full impact on our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.